0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Philip Goff. He is a philosopher and consciousness researcher at Durham University in the UK. His main research uh, focus is trying to explain how the brain produces consciousness. Dr. Goff also has a sideline in political philosophy, focusing on issues pertaining to taxation, globalization, and social justice. He's also the author of, of the book... Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, which is also about to be published in Portugal, but we're going to talk about that in the end of the interview. So, Dr. Goff, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much. great Great to chat to you. Okay, great. So, Uh, Okay, so we're going to talk about consciousness today, of course, and the philosophical slash scientific underpinnings of consciousness, let's put it that way. So, but in your book... Uh, I guess that you also put a lot of emphasis on uh, discussing the ways we talk about matter and how we address matter from a scientific perspective and also the philosophy of materialism slash physicalism. So, could you first start by telling us what materialism is about?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess it's actually a bit of an ambiguous word. Materialism or physicalism, and um, I think it's a bit a bit ironic because materialism is something a lot of philosophers get very passionate about, either because they want to defend materialism or because they want to attack it. But actually, when you start to actually carefully think about what it what it's supposed to mean, it's it's not at all clear. It's a, and there's lots of different meanings that are offered. Um, I, I think probably the most useful way of defining it, at least to start off, is as the view that. Physical science is on its way to giving us a complete story of reality. So you might think, you know, the mind's going to be explained in terms of neuroscience, uh, neuroscience in terms of chemistry, uh, chemistry in terms of physics, and then, you know, physics will give us a complete story of the basic building blocks. And so overall, we'll get, you know, a a grand unified theory of everything. So I think that's, you know, the best way to at least start thinking about what, what materialism is all about.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you talk about materialism in your book, are you simply referring to the way uh, in science we approach matter and the nature of matter and existence? Or does it also have some implications to um, what we call in philosophy, methodological naturalism and the scientific method? I guess that… So, there, yes, there are different ways you could define it. You can define
1: it as a kind of world view, or you could define it as a sort of methodology. Um, in terms of a world view, I mean, I tend to, and, in this, and this fits well with the definition I, I started with, I tend to think of it as the view that you can completely capture reality in a purely quantitative language. And I think this fits well with a way of understanding physical science as, as as having a purely quantitative language, really sort of from Galileo onwards. You know, Gal- one important move in the um, scientific revolution is when Galileo says mathematics is to be the language of science. And I think you know, as, as much as, science, as physical science has changed, it's still in, in terms of physics, maybe it's not purely mathematical, there are also causal notions, but this kind of Mathematical and in a way it's a very austere vocabulary mathematical notions as well as perhaps causal notions we can call this a quantitative vocabulary, so that's the view that we can completely capture nature in a in a quantitative language, and that, as we'll probably get to, I think this is where you you get the the difficulties of consciousness arising from um, but yeah I guess it's also related to a methodological point um. Methodological naturalism being roughly the view that in, in in trying to come up with a complete theory of reality, the only data we need to attend to are the data of observation and experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a methodological naturalist for at least one reason, because I think there's something else we need to account for, namely the reality of consciousness. Nothing is more evident than one's, Feelings and experiences they're real and that's part of reality so if you've got a theory that can completely account for all the data of observation experiment you know this grand unified theory we the will one day get to but it, if you've got such a theory but it can't account for consciousness then it's thereby falsified because there's there's something you've missed out something we know is real that, that you've missed out so um so that's i guess i mean i just want to emphasize finally this is not a critique of physics. I think ph- I, physics is great, and it, you know, at uh, and probably physicists should be methodological naturalists. This is a critique of a certain philosophical uh, view on how we should understand physics and its and physical science more generally, and its role in the overall project of trying to formulate a complete theory of reality. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, and what would you say are the uh, most important epistemological limitations, that is, the limitations in terms of what it allows for us to know uh, when it comes to materialism as we have it nowadays? Um, So maybe, I guess it's very important to distinguish materialism
1: as a philosophical worldview from, let's say, physical science. Okay. So, I mean, as I say, physical science is great. I mean, neuroscience in particular is absolutely crucial for understanding consciousness, and I'm a huge fan of neuroscience and trying to stay as up-to-date as I can. But, but there are some limitations, I think, to what you can get out of, say, neuroscience and studying consciousness. I mean, basically, what neuroscience gives us are correlations you know the the grand project one grand project in in the neuroscience of consciousness is looking for what's called the neuro the the the, the, neuro, the neuro correlates of consciousness ncc mm-hmm. so we're basically you know we're looking what goes on in the brain how that correlates with consciousness so consciousness in general we're looking for the necessary and sufficient conditions in in the brain Uh, for having consciousness at all, or for particular conscious states. And when someone's having a particular kind of conscious experience, what does that correlate uh, to in the brain? So that's absolutely crucial data for a science of consciousness. But that's not the complete story. In a way, that's only the start, because we then want to explain those correlations, right? We don't just want to rest with correlations. Why is it? Why is it when such and such goes on in the brain, someone feels pain or hunger or whatever? And, you know, that's where, in a way, where the big theories start, you know, and the, the materialist will give one answer, the dualist another, uh, the panpsychist another, whatever. So I think we, you know, we, we can't get a complete theory of consciousness just from the neuroscience. And it's this is a crucial point, actually. Because, I mean, it's kind of complete. It's kind of completely uncontroversial in in philosophy of consciousness on all sides of the debate. I actually examined an an MPhil thesis last last week in uh, King's College London, a a very good student challenging this thesis, uh, so it can be challenged, but it's pretty uncontentious. But I find actually outside of philosophy of consciousness, people are surprised by this. You know, people think, oh, doesn't neuroscience support materialism? But the neuroscience is neutral, right? The neuroscience gives you correlations, and we then need a philosophical theory to explain those correlations. So, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that's what you mean when at a certain point in your book, you say that physics only tells us about causal relationships, but nothing about the nature of the things that compose the universe. Is that what you mean by that? that? Um
1: it's a related point, I guess, yeah,
0: so then I, I guess
1: I was just speaking about neuroscience in relation to um, to to consciousness, but yeah, this 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 broader point is I guess very important to um, the approach I take on on consciousness and uh, and so, so I think in in the public mind. Physics is giving us this complete description of the nature of space, time, and matter. But I would argue that, I mean, actually, when you really reflect on the information you get from physical science, it becomes apparent that it's actually just confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, about what stuff does. So if you think about what physics tells us about an electron, you know, it tells us, for example, that it has mass and charge. Um, How does physics characterize these properties? Mass is characterized in terms of uh, gravitational attraction and in terms of resistance to acceleration. Uh, Charge is characterized in terms of attraction and repulsion. These all concern the behavior of the electron. So physics is completely silent on what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of matter. Uh, how 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 the electron, for example, is in and of itself independent of its behaviour or its relationships with other particles. Um, so physics says nothing about that. So in in a way, there is this huge hole in our scientific story of the universe, even even before you get to consciousness. Because physics is just telling us what stuff does, how it behaves. It doesn't tell us anything about its intrinsic nature. So it's sometimes called uh, the problem of intrinsic natures. Um, It might be what, you know, Stephen Hawking's famous book, The Brief History of Time, on the last page, he talks about how even if we get a grand unified theory one day in physics, it will still just be equations. And he, he says it won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations so that this might be this might be uh, what, one way of understanding this that uh, you know physics gives us these mathematical models that are extremely good at predicting how matter behaves but those mathematical models don't really tell us what what matter is in its intrinsic nature
0: so uh, do you espouse a sort of dualistic approach to to consciousness that is a a sort of mind-brain dualism in the sense that you say that perhaps consciousness fundamentally in terms of its nature is different from the physical processes that we are able to identify operating at the level of the brain?
1: No, not quite. I mean, I'm skeptical that to a materialist account of consciousness, I mean, for reasons we, we maybe quite haven't got on to um, entirely. Um, but so on the one hand, I'm skeptical that we can give a completely materialistic account kind of consciousness. But on the other hand, I'm also skeptical of uh, dualist accounts where we take consciousness to be something outside of the physical body and brain. And, you know, when I was at graduate school, or I, was, I guess more when I was an undergraduate in philosophy, we were taught these were the only two options,
0: right? You either
1: think you can explain consciousness in terms of the chemistry of the brain, or you think it's, it's non-physical, it's outside of the brain. Uh, and, you know, I came to think both of these options were pretty hopeless. I mean, I, th- I think the problem with dualism, I think the problems of materialism are more philosophical in nature. The problem with dualism are more straightforwardly scientific. And the problem is just that if there was an immaterial mind interacting with the brain every second of uh, waking life, then you'd think that would really show up in our neuroscience. You know, there'd be all sorts of things happening in the brain that had no physical cause. You know, it'd be like a poltergeist was playing with the brain. And it just doesn't seem that that's what we do find in neuroscience, uh, and so I think this this gives us a, a strong, and ever-growing case against dualism. Uh, the fact that the fact that we don't seem to see the the impact of an immaterial mind on the brain. So yeah, so I'm afraid I think that both these options are pretty hopeless, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: So, would you say that the big problem here is the one about phenomenal consciousness, that is, the part of consciousness that is related to uh, how we experience it?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a huge debate, but the way I would put the core of the problem for materialism in terms, in reference to consciousness, is that... As we've already discussed physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary mm-hmm. whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative phenomenon just in the sense that it involves qualities you know if you think about the blueness of a blue experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint you, know, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative language of physical science and so A purely quantitative description of the universe, of matter, of the brain, is always going to leave something out. It's always going to leave out these qualities that we we know to be real from our own case. So, yeah, that's, that's, I think, the core of the difficulty. Mm
0: -hmm. And does it matter here if we don't really perceive the world as it is? Like, Like, for example, if what happens... With us mentally, and what we experience at a conscious level uh, would be simply the result of evolved mental mechanisms that we got from natural selection and that don't really correspond to something. Uh, I- I'm not sure if this is the correct way to put it, but something real. Yeah. Um... Well, it depends what you mean if you if you're thinking in terms
1: of do we perceive the external world as as it really is Mm. um i mean i i I, i'm pretty sure we don't i think the way we see colors are not are not really out there in the world in the way we experience them to be you know it seems to me that there's a, a reddish color on the surface of the box of tea bags in front of me um I don't think there really is such a reddish quality out there in the world this is as you say is something a kind of experience a kind of way that natural selection has found it useful to indicate to me features of the environment and i don't think we need to think those features are really there but i suppose there's a more radical position um defended for example by keith frankish who I, i noticed you had on a previous episode that actually consciousness itself the qualities i've just been talking about the qualities in our experience all the qualities that seem to characterize our experience like what it's like to see red what it's like to feel pain uh, these qualities that seem to be immediately present in our experience uh someone like keith frankish would say actually this they don't exist evolution has Created us to think there are uh, qualities of experience when, actually, that they don't exist at all. So I mean, that's a much more radical position. Um, and that, I mean, that if if you were to accept Keith Frankish's view, yes, you'd avoid all the problems of consciousness that I worry about. You know, in one go, and um, and it's a very it's a fascinating position. I suppose I have a number of reasons for not ultimately embracing it. I mean, I mean, one I just feel that the reality of one's own consciousness is, is more it is better known than anything else, It's better known than any fact about the external world. Perhaps you don't know anything for certain, but the reality, say, of my own pain, if I'm in agony, the reality of that pain, that feeling of pain, seems better known to me than, you know, that there's a table in front of me. Um, and so I think Descartes was right in precisely this point, although wrong in, a, in many other respects. Um, Also, I think, you know, I think all knowledge of of the world comes through consciousness. You know, I think we only know about electrons because of our experience of uh, things in cloud chambers, or, you know, we only know any scientific data through our conscious experience of the results of experiments. Uh, And so, you know, all, all knowledge of the world is mediated through experience. So the idea that we could have empirical... Knowledge that consciousness doesn't exist seems to me sort of self-defeating. It's like you know, uh, believing someone when they tell you they never tell the truth. There's something kind of self-defeating about that. And, and also, just finally, I think there are other options which which we might get onto. I think there are ways of um, preserving the the reality of consciousness as it ordinarily seems to be, and making that consistent with everything we know scientifically about the world. So I think, you know, we don't need to go the, uh, the route of the Keith Frankish position of thinking consciousness is an illusion, um, at least not
0: yet. Okay, okay. So, but I also asked you that because, I mean, isn't it also the case that Uh, On the other hand, we also seem to have some intuitions, and since we talk about consciousness here, uh, intuitions that derive from our theory of mind about how our minds and the minds of other people work, and perhaps we attribute certain beliefs and certain properties to our minds and the minds of other people that when we put people through experiments done, for example, in experimental psychology, cognitive psychology, and other areas of the cognitive sciences, it seems that people really fail to properly identify what happens in their mind. So would that be relevant here? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the-
1: I would never claim, and here's where I do disagree with Descartes. Perhaps I would never claim that we're completely infallible about our own consciousness. There's all sorts of really interesting empirical stuff about how we get things wrong. Perhaps we think consciousness is richer than it is. Uh, all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, but I think that does that in itself doesn't give you grounds to think the whole phenomenon does not exist. Uh, you know, I. I I've never seen a convincing empirical case that, you know, consciousness as a whole phenomenon itself fails to exist. I mean, usually the people who deny the existence of consciousness start from an assumption of materialism, say, oh, you know, it's hard in a materialist worldview to account for consciousness. Well, fine. Materialism is, is not a scientific position; it's a philosophical position, and there are alternatives which are completely consistent with, with what science tells us about the world. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so I'd, 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 I've never. I don't think there's any anything any of these really interesting uh, neuroscientific findings. You know, give us a reason to deny that consciousness exists.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so could you now uh, summarize your position about what would be the best approach to understand the nature of consciousness? And I guess that you start in your book with uh, giving some importance, let's say, to common sense and how people uh, experience and think about consciousness, right?
1: Right. Um, yeah, so so I'm very influenced by certain work of uh, Bertrand Russell and uh, Arthur Eddington, the scientist Arthur Eddington, who confirmed general relativity, uh, from the 1920s. Certain work which is kind of completely forgotten about for a very long time, um, but has recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy and is causing a lot of excitement. I, so I'm inclined to think these guys did for consciousness science in the 1920s what Darwin did for the science of life. And it, you know, for various historical reasons, it got sort of forgotten about for a long time. But it's recently been rediscovered, leading to a view that's become known as resilient monism in in the academic uh, community. But anyway, I think the essential insight of this approach is to to bring together um, two problems so one, we've already talked about the problem of intrinsic natures, you know, the problem that physical science just tells us about the behavior of matter, it doesn't tell us about its intrinsic nature. Mm-hmm. And then the other is the problem of consciousness. You know, we, so we can roughly think of the problem of consciousness as the problem of how we, how we fit consciousness into our scientific story of the world. You know, we know it's real, it must be fitted in somehow, but... It seems really hard to do that. You know, it doesn't seem to fit in our standard scientific picture of the world uh, because it seems qualitative rather than quantitative as we discussed. But then if you if you put it outside of the physical world you know you get these empirical problems which we discussed. So it's hard to find a place for it. It's hard to integrate it into our scientific picture. Uh, so anyway so that this Russell Eddington insight is to bring both of these together right. So the problem of intrinsic natures is You know, we've got this huge hole in our scientific story. The problem of consciousness is we need a place for consciousness. So the solution to both is put consciousness in the hole. So roughly the idea is, you know, there's just matter. This is not dualism. There's nothing supernatural. There's just material stuff, physical properties. Physics describes them, as it were, from the outside in terms of what they, if what they do. Physics describes matter in terms of what it does. But in terms of its intrinsic nature, its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So this is a beautifully simple, parsimonious, elegant way of integrating conscious physical picture of the world. Sorry to bleep then. And one that's completely consistent with everything we know scientifically. Um, so, so, so this is the, the broad approach, sometimes known as Roselian monism, and the way I've just described it is in its kind of panpsychist form. Uh, you know, and it seems that there are still unfortunate cultural connotations with panpsychism, you know, and people are just, you know, it's getting taken a lot more seriously, both in, in philosophy and, um, and neuroscience to an extent, but some people still find it just silly or something. But I think you know these are just cultural associations and we should judge a view by its explanatory power. And what what this Russell Eddington panpsychism allows us to do is to integrate consciousness into our scientific story in a way that doesn't interfere with anything scientists tell us. You know, it's it's brilliant. So uh, forget the kind of unfortunate new age connotations and you know it solves all the problems.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of panpsychism, uh, w- wouldn't, it, uh, wouldn't it demand that um, th- there would be a different kind of constituent or property of matter for, for, for it to have some sort of uh, consciousness uh, property to it. I, I'm not sure if I've been clear here or not, but I guess that this, these are very complicated um, subjects, so.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good point. So, I think when people first hear about panpsychism, they often interpret it dualistically, and I, I think maybe that's what you're pointing to. So, people think, okay, so the ele- the thought is that the electrons has the electron has its physical properties, like mass and charge and spin, and it's consciousness properties, right? And that would be dualism, and I think that would have all the same problems dualism faces. But that's not the view, right? The view is um, mass, spin, and charge. The physical properties are forms of consciousness, right? There aren't two kinds of properties. Those very There's just one set of properties. The properties physicists talk about, mass, spin, and charge, for example, Physics characterizes what they do. Physics tells us what they do, how they behave, really useful information, but it doesn't tell us what they are in their intrinsic nature. And in their intrinsic nature, the view is they are forms of consciousness. So you've got to really appreciate that this is radically Um, non-dualistic. There's just the subject matter of physics, but there's more to physical properties than physics tells us about. Physics tells us what they do, it doesn't tell us what they are. So that's, there was, there was, oh what's her name, oh my mind's gone blank now. There was a big Twitter argument that I was partly involved in, a, um, a physicist whose name escapes me right now, who said, oh this panpsychism is ridiculous because there's, there's no empirical evidence of these non-physical properties. But this is just not to not to really understand that the form of panpsychism which is now getting taken very seriously in contemporary academic philosophy it's not the view that there are these extra non-physical properties it's an interpretation of what's going on in physics it's those physical properties are forms of consciousness and then that that worry about seeing the impact of extra non-physical properties just evaporates
0: mm-hmm. okay so and uh, how would we arrive at the nature of consciousness? How would we know what it really is instead of just having, as you say, a description of the causal relationships of properties of matter that we know about? Um,
1: so so I think, yeah, I think in terms of physical science, in, empirical observation, I think you just get causal relationships you get behavior um but i guess i think i think there is something we know about consciousness through introspection through attending to our conscious states um, of course we don't know everything about them as i've already said you know this is often this is sometimes i'm sometimes mischaracterizing this way i'm not saying you know we comp- we never make mistakes about our own consciousness but I do think there's something we know about the nature of consciousness through introspection. I mean, I, how, how to put that? I think when you're just attending to the character of a conscious state you're currently having, to the, a particular conscious state you're currently having, and thinking of it in terms of what it's like to have that conscious state, um what it's like to see red or what it's like to feel pain, but not pain in general or red experience in general, but the particular experience you're having right now and you're thinking about its particular character, I think you understand that character. So this is doctrine of phenomenal transparency that I talk about along my book. Um, so so I, th- I think in a way this is completely uncontroversial because all I'm saying is, you know what it's like to feel pain when you feel pain. You know what it's like to see red when you see red. Um, or it's even more modest than that because, as I say, it's not what it's like to feel pain in general. It's you. Know, I'm talking about a specific pain you're feeling at a specific moment. You know how it feels. You know the experiential character. Um, so that's something you know. And I think it's something real. It's part of reality. Um, and and it's 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 about the quality of the experience. And it's that quality that I think is real, that we know about, and has to be brought into our scientific story somehow. And it seems to me this Russell Eddington panpsychist model is the best way to do it. You know, maybe there's some deep illusion here and, and the um, actually the quality doesn't exist at all, but I'd want to know what, why someone was pushed to think that. I think it's more a sort of materialist ideology that would push you to think that. I think, you know, I th- so I think I think we're going for a phase, if I can just, I think we're going for a phase of history where people are so blown away by the success of physical science and the wonderful technology it's produced that they're inclined to think, oh, that's everything! But I think what you've got to appreciate is that physical science has been so successful because precisely because for the last 500 years it's been focused on a a very specific task you know namely telling us what things do constructing mathematical models to predict behavior You know, and the fact that it's been very successful at doing that doesn't give us any reason to think it's very successful at you know capturing the subjective qualities of experience it's never been trying to do that and you know actually my new book is called Galileo's error because you know Galileo is quite explicit about this he's He starts off the scientific revolution or an important phase of it by saying consciousness, the qualities of consciousness, they're in the soul, you know, they're outside of science. Just focus on the quantitative stuff you can capture mathematically. Um, And that's gone really well, but it was only ever intended as a limited project. Right. The fact that, you know, the fact that it's gone well when we ignore consciousness and focus on this narrow task of predicting behavior doesn't mean it's going to explain consciousness and it doesn't mean it's consciousness doesn't exist so i think i think there are th- there's mistaken thought about the what what morals to draw from the the success of physical science which is a wonderful thing but you know i think people are drawing the wrong lesson from it
0: yeah <laughs> yeah when it comes to and to the qualities of experience that humans and other beings have Isn't it also the case that we have a huge obstacle in terms of there being a lot of inter-individual variability in terms of how people experience things, even things like pain and color and so on? I mean, is there any way for us to be sure that my experience of pain, and it doesn't matter what kind of pain it is, is exactly the same yeah. as yours, for example.
1: These are, these are very, very deep difficulties that you're pointing to. And there's a great paper, an old paper now by Ned Block called The Even Harder Problem of Consciousness. And what he focuses on there is, you know, so suppose you get these neural correlates um, of human pain. He says, "Well, h- how do you know whether it's uh, it's the specific neurophysiological state that's correlated, or that it's some broader behavioural functioning property? It looks like there's going to be both two properties correlated. How do you know which one is the is the relevant one for consciousness? Um, so it's one way in which it looks like perhaps the data of consciousness are underdetermined. Um, you know, the, the, I mean the." the The core of the problem here is consciousness is unobservable. You can't look inside someone's head and see their feelings and experiences. If you were just a pure methodological naturalist, then there is no hard problem of consciousness because we we can't see consciousness, so it's not something we need to account for. I think there's a lot of confusion, actually. I mean, Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent on this. He he doesn't think there is a datum of consciousness. There is isn't a heart. But there's a lot of people who think of themselves as methodological naturalists, you know, that we just need to account for data of observation ex- and, and ex- sorry, observation experiment, but also think there's a hard problem of consciousness. And I, I mean, I think that's really confused, because you only think there's a hard problem of consciousness if you think there's this unobservable datum, namely consciousness, that needs to be accounted for. You know, so we don't know about consciousness through third-person observation. We know about it through being immediately aware of our own feelings and experiences. And this is another way of seeing, actually, why it's so different to other scientific problems. You know, of course, physics is well used to unobservables, but it only, work, it only appeals to unobservables in the postulations. You postulate unobservable entities to account for the data of observation, but with consciousness, the datum, is unobservable. The thing to be explained is unobservable. Right, so there's a huge issue, and it's, this is what, you know, the the science of consciousness is in many ways harder, and it's such early days, and it's in many ways harder than other scientific domains. Um, Maybe human beings will never be able to fill in all the details. Who knows? I mean, I'm not being a defeatist. Uh, But, I mean, this is, for for anyone, whether you're a materialist, a dualist, panpsychist, whatever, there are these deep, inherent difficulties as a problem of consciousness. All we can do is, you know, do the best we can by trying to correlate consciousness by by the only way we can, asking people what they're experiencing when we're scanning their brain, um, so to speak, and just do the best we can, theorize as best we can, and it's probably going to be, more speculative, perhaps, than uh, other scientific domains. I mean, a lot of physics is desperately speculative these days. But I think we've just got to do the best we can. And I think people are in, think that, you know, in science we can get certainties and we can prove it. And But, you know, a lot of it's having our best guess. But, there's, you know, there's a difference between having your, your best guess constrained by rational argument and empirical data rather than just sort of, you know, believing what you want to believe. We should, you know try and be constrained by argument and data, and then have our best guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, but, uh, I mean, we're talking about consciousness, and it is a mental process, and so it also falls under the rubric of disciplines, like, for example, psychology. But when it comes to certain very specific mental processes, like, I don't know, for example, the emotions, I mean... We don't have also direct access yeah. to an emotion, yeah. but I mean, through data coming from, uh, for example, experimental psychology, cognitive psychology, evolutionary psychology, and things like that, we are able to understand uh, by observing people's behavior and by having an evolutionary rationale as to why that particular kind of emotion might have evolved and what sorts of problems it evolved to solve and things like that. And then adding genetics and endocrinology and neuroscience and things like that, Mm -hmm. we are able to uh, understand at least uh, how it works in a pretty a pretty good way from a scientific perspective. So, w- wouldn't that be enough?
1: I, I don't disagree with anything you said until maybe the last sentence.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it depends what you want to do. There's When we talk about scientific study of consciousness, that can mean lots of different things. It could mean, you know, trying to understand human psychology or animal psychology and... Um, trying to give evolutionary reasons for why, why we have the kind of mental lives we do and, uh, and the kind of methodologies you pointed to are all really important in, in, in these different tasks. Uh, so what I'm focused on is, is something quite specific that, you know, is not the only thing relevant to science of consciousness which is, you know, the central, which is just the central problem of how we fit consciousness into our theory of reality. I mean, I guess it's a question, why does consciousness exist? Um, And, you know, I take consciousness to be, the reality of consciousness to be a datum in its own right, over and above the data of observation experiments, as I've already said. You know, if we if you, if you can account for all the, the data of third-person observation experiments, your job isn't finished because we know that feelings or experiences are real. You know that when you, when you feel pain. You know it's real. So that's part of reality that must be accommodated in our complete theory of reality. So I suppose I'm, I'm a philosopher. I'm a metaphysician. I'm interested in the task of giving a complete theory of reality. And I'm interested in how consciousness the need to accommodate consciousness affects that project of what our complete theory of reality looks like i actually think it's it's hugely neglected in what we call metaphysics more generally so metaphysics being the branch of philosophy that tries to give a complete theory of reality um it's hugely neglected i think it's the result of maybe everything so specialized now even branches of philosophy within philosophy so you know and back in the day, people like great philosophers of the 20th century, like David Lewis and David Armstrong, had a very different view of consciousness to me. But they, but they, they knew the philosophy of mind and they knew the metaphysics. Whereas these days, I think people are so specialised and so, you know, people working on metaphysics, uh, you know, hardly reflect on consciousness at all. Anyway, so, so my the thing I want to press is it's a crucial datum, and. So I'm not sure uh, the kind of methodologies you're pointing towards, psychology and evolutionary psychology, and so on, help much with, with that task. Not that they're not important in many respects, but I, I don't think how they, they shed much light on that task.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> unless you think, unless you think there's a good argument for Keith Frankish-style illusionism, the conscious doesn't exist. But I mean, we could, I, I'm kind of skeptical of that kind of argument.
0: Okay, but since with your approach we're trying to arrive at what consciousness is instead of how it works or the causal relationship, the physical causal relationships that we get in consciousness, let's say, uh, wouldn't it always have a a sort of subjectivist or even perspectivist flavor to it? Mm -hmm. Because we're talking about the Experience itself. Let's see. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm talking
1: about what consciousness is. So this is maybe a pedantic, but people often express the the sort of stuff I do in that way. It's not. I mean, I think it's because people. People often think you know. We really understand what the brain is through neuroscience, and then, and then there's this mysterious thing, consciousness, and what on earth is that? I actually think it's the other way around. I think we know what consciousness is by being conscious, at least to an extent. At least we know the character of our conscious experiences. We know what, how it, what it's like to feel pain, and it's matter that's the mysterious thing. Uh, For the reasons we've discussed that physical science just tells us about its behavior not its intrinsic nature um so so the the task is really rather how does consciousness fit into reality it's not so much what consciousness is how it fits into reality but anyway that's that's a pedantic little point but your broader point yeah in a way it does make it subjective it's not something the reality of consciousness cannot be verified from the third-person perspective Uh, and this is why people like Daniel Dennett and Keith Frankish say well it's not real but again I think there's no argument for that claim I think one is led to that by I think historians will look back at this funny period of history where you know people I mean I just think that the incredible technology that's come from physical science and the fact that it's brought such consensus It has a visceral effect on you. You think, oh my God, this is working. But it's working precisely because it's been trying to do a very limited task, right? So that, you know, that doesn't, the fact that something goes well when it, I put a given analogy in my book um, that uh, when I was first a uh, a lecturer in philosophy, you're supposed to do teaching and you're supposed to do administration. but in the first term, my, my head of department said, you don't have to do administration for your first term. And I was really good at the job when I could just do teaching. That doesn't mean I'm going to be good at administration. And in fact, I wasn't. But so in the same way, you know, okay, physical science has done really well at this limited task. What? Why does that give you reason to think that's all there is? So, um, uh, yeah, so, so I guess, yes, it's subjective. It's something you know about from the first person. It's, but... I, don't, I, th- I think it's still real. I think it's nothing is more evident than the reality of your own feelings and experiences. It's still real. It, for the re- this makes the science of consciousness harder to do and perhaps more speculative. But that's you know that's the unfortunate nature of the human epistemic situation. Uh, we've got to deal with the human epistemic situation as we find it and try and, as I say, have our best guess at what reality is like, given our frail resources. But we can't just pretend some of the things don't exist because it makes life easier. I mean, I guess that's how I interpret Daniel Dennett. May, life is easier if we pretend consciousness doesn't exist. That's, uh, that's not the way to do things. We need to face up to these difficulties. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah yeah but i mean uh, it's also the case that when people start thinking about these kinds of things and what they are and how they work and what is it uh, their nature and things like that i mean most people uh, go about their days and don't really care about thinking if what is consciousness and if it exists or not. And if it yep. exists, what it what is its nature and things like that. But when we really get into trying to understand uh, what it is and how we can prove that it exists or not. I, I, I mean, Perhaps there, there's where we get into these issues, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I'm not saying everyone has to do this, or it's the it's the only important thing, or it's. Uh, um, I guess I think, I think it's it's worth. It's something human beings want. Uh, some human beings want to do is to try and formulate a complete theory of reality. I think that's worth doing and if we want to do that we've got to account for everything everything that's real and consciousness seems to be real maybe it's not you know maybe it's who knows who knows anything for certain but i feel more confident that my consciousness exists than, than that the physical world exists because <laughs> that seems to me more removed from the immediate reality of own consciousness. so um um and you know theories of consciousness you know that things do have all kinds of unexpected practical implications I mean one's theory of consciousness might affect how you think about the neural correlates which might affect things like you know how we know whether coma patients ha- are conscious or not so I mean there are practical spin-offs that, that one might't expect I, I mean I sort of think of it a little bit like um, different interpretations of quantum mechanics that you know we've got the you know quantum mechanics is this um, you know is mathematical theory that's incredibly well um confirmed experimentally but then no one knows what the hell it implies about reality so we have different interpretations and it's kind of speculative trying to decide between them so i sort of think that's that's the same with um with theories of consciousness we've got the neuroscientific data the correlations which which we can to some extent at least Independently confirm, at least if we if we think we can rely on what people say about their own consciousness. Um, but then, but then that that leaves open all the different theories of why those correlations obtain, and deciding amongst them physicalism, dualism, panpsychism is going to be to some extent speculative. And but people are curious and they want to know and they want to have a guess, an informed guess at which view is most likely to be true, and I think that's a worthwhile project.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's interesting that at a certain point there you said something along along the lines of, oh, I'm more sure that consciousness exists than even the outside world, let's put it that way. But do you say that because uh, from a certain perspective, it's also the case that even what we are able to do scientifically is always limited by our uh, epistemological tools. That is, our human epistemological tools, the uh, what we, the the cognitive tools that we have at our disposal to approach the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a familiar problem in philosophy how we can't even prove that there's an external world so how do we know we're not in the matrix kant thought this was the greatest scandal of philosophy that you couldn't prove um i mean a slightly less familiar issue is how we know that the future will resemble the past induction that induction inductive inferences are going to be maintained mm-hmm. which science is reliant on right we we make inductive inferences from a limited sample to a broader sample we assume that the laws of nature are going to continue as they are and that they're the same in all parts of the universe you know don't know that for sure you know it could be that the laws of nature come in epochs and we're about to go through an epoch change and everything's (laughs) going to go there's all sorts of assumptions we have to make and this is all of science is incredibly uncertain to my mind, the most certain things, I mean, just my view on the human epistemological situation, to my mind, the most things we're most certain of are logic and mathematics and one's own consciousness. They seem to be the things that it's very hard to deny the reality of. You, it's very hard to entertain sceptical thought experiments about. You know, you can easily think, oh, I'm in the, maybe I'm in the matrix, the evil computer's deceiving me. It's very hard to to get into the mindset that the evil computers are making you think you're in pain when you're not. So, I mean, that just seems to me um, what's most said. Now you can't do a hell of a lot with that. I don't agree with Descartes that you can build up all knowledge of reality on that slim foundation. But at the same time, given that we've got this, we do have the, these aspects of reality that are certain to us, you know, I think we should cling on to them. Um, I mean, you, get, you also get you have Quine in the 20th century, famous philosopher, also doubting the kind of um, the certainty of logic uh, on the backdrop of, of, of a sort of generalized empirical epistemology. So again, I think this, we're going through this phase of history where it's over-enthusiasm with... Uh, Empirical science, great as it is, but, you know, don't, don't cast out logic, mathematics, you know, you've got to, logic, mathematics, consciousness. There are these other forms of knowledge that we have to take into consideration as well if we're interested. Not necessarily scientists. I'm not saying scientists have to do that. depends what you're doing, but if you're interested in a complete theory of reality, then you've, you've got to look, look at these things too.
0: <laughs> okay okay so dr goff let's send the interview here but just before we go would you like to tell people what would be some of the best online resources if they want to get in touch with more of your work and i know that you also want to tell us about a, a book of yours that is about to be published also here in portugal right right
1: yeah uh what have i got so well there's my website philipgoffphilosophy.com. Mm-hmm. i've also got a blog which is on consciousness but also things that annoy me about politics uh which is conscience and consciousness which is a horrible horrible uh to remember thing actually conscience and consciousness i might change that and just put it on my website or something anyway philip Goff philosophy um and there's a lot of popular articles on my website so i you know, I do I write a lot of popular stuff and there's a firm distinction. Some of my academic stuff's quite unex unac- inaccessible, um, but I write a lot of popular stuff as well and it's it's clearly distinguished. So yeah, my, my the book you mentioned, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality from two thousand seventeen is is more my academic book. So that's out with Oxford University Press. But I've also got a book aimed at a general audience called Galileo's Era Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, which is a totally different kind of book. It's um it's, it's uh, really aimed at a general audience, you know, whatever your level of knowledge of these things. And it's you know, discussing materialism and dualism and panpsychism and um, starting off from this idea that um, the problem of consciousness is, is built into the way we set up science and scientific revolutions. as is Galileo's own. Uh, but yeah, so that's going to be published on August the 15th in the US and the UK. But actually, it's also going to be published at some point in Portugal. What, could you remind me the name of the publisher? Uh,
0: it's Temas e Debates.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, I mean, I don't know when that's going to come out, because I guess it's going to be translated. It's going to be translated into Portuguese. And uh, at some point, I'm not sure exactly the publication date, but at some some point. So it's going to be out in, in English in uh, August, and then some later date in Portuguese. So, yeah, so it's... it's uh, Yeah, I guess that's about it.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of this interview. And so, Dr. Goff, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And thank you also for your patience, because sometimes it's a little bit difficult to uh, articulate these sorts of thoughts. And when it comes to consciousness, it's even more difficult. So... Uh, I mean, and perhaps now and then I wasn't that clear. I'm not sure. Oh, no, it's
1: been a really great discussion. Um, thanks, Thanks so much for taking the time to chat to me about this stuff.
0: Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and i have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, Otherwise, if you don't like Patreon, you can also go to PayPal or Subscribestar. All of the links are in the description box of the video and also on my channel. Uh, And apart from that, you can also, of course, leave a like, share the interview and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanchett, Perel Larsen, Law Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, and my first producer, Isar Webbe. Thank you for all.